Hello and welcome to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. In this series, I want to explore how the coronavirus has and is changing the ways in which we live. From its impact on our social, psychological and physical well-being, to its effect on our businesses, economies, our cultures and the climate. Crucially, at the heart of my inquiry, I want to unearth what unexpected opportunities this situation may bring, not only for our own lives, but also for the ways in which we want to build our future. I hope you'll join me as we dive into these big questions. And as always, if you'd like to know more, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash the high podcast. And you can also reach out to me personally on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. And if there's anyone you know who's really struggling right now, who you feel might be supported by the topics and themes and conversations that we hold within this podcast, please do send them a link. Thank you again for joining me in this strange time. I hope you enjoy the show. This episode, I speak with Jeff White, an investigative tech journalist and author, whose book Crime.com, From Viruses to Vote Rigging, How Hacking Went Global, is due out on the 10th of August this year. Jeff has covered technology for BBC News, Channel 4 News, Audible, Forbes Online and many others, and his exclusives reveal tech's impact on our lives. From the controversial police use of facial recognition and the failure of AI therapy apps to high-tech call centre scams and fraud in the online dating industry. He has written and presented two major podcast series for Audible, Artificial Intelligence, Friend or Foe, and The Dark Web. And he also runs his own series, Cybercrime Investigations, which is an inside look into the world of an investigative journalist detailing the twists and turns as the story unfolds. If you've been following my podcast since it started, you'll have heard us in conversation in episode five, where we explored the murky world of the dark web and the manipulative power of fake news. And I wanted to bring Jeff back on the show in this moment to help us dig deeper into the ways in which misinformation flows so quickly from one person to the next and what we can do to become more resilient against content that is designed to alarm and persuade. I hope you find this conversation useful and I really look forward to hearing your feedback. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. No problem. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by saying that um, I know that you've got an exciting new book, which is due to be released on August the 10th this year, called Crime.com, From Viruses to Vote Rigging, How Hacking Went Global. And it seems like a very apt moment to dive into a conversation with you again, to explore how the online world can be manipulated to influence outcomes, especially with fake news and misinformation continuing to proliferate during this pandemic. So I want to open our conversation by asking, from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Um, it's interesting in terms of the information that's being distributed, particularly, uh, obviously, with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, what I find fascinating is I, f- I feel like there's an information vacuum and attempts to fill that information vacuum are having consequences that the people who've put the information out aren't necessarily aware of. So I'm thinking particularly of of government messaging and official messaging, how that's being distributed, how people are taking to it. And also, because we're in a situation, you know, in, in 2020, whereby we're used to searching out our own information, we're used mm. to doing our own research on online, and we're used to having uh, access to huge amounts of information at our fingertips, there's a tension between attempts to control the official flow of information and the the reaction of a sort of information-saturated public who are then prepared to go off and fill in the gaps on their own to, to, to with, with more or less beneficial effects for themselves. And what do you think is the biggest challenge that journalists and authorities who have knowledge and information to share so for instance the who what do you think the biggest challenges to these people are right now in terms of communicating clearly the information they have with the wider public 
Well, I think, I mean, periods like a pandemic are always an interesting time to kind of test the amount of credence that traditional journalism and what you might call mainstream uh, media, MSM, as people use uh, the term, sometimes pejoratively, um, how much sway and how much power they have. Mm. Um, It it is still the case that, frankly, people are going to watch BBC News, they're going to watch Channel 4 News, my old employer. These these yeah. places are seeing a huge boom in figures because people do, they want to go there for that information. But what's interesting is you see this ebb and flow online of belief in those traditional outlets. You know, can we believe what the BBC is telling us? Not, you know, looking at things that the BBC is missing out and attaching huge importance to that. And what's interesting is, is, has been watching the, the traditional broadcasters trying to monitor the reaction among the public to the news that they put out and then address that. So if there's a, a, um, a conspiracy or if there's a, a piece of information that's circulating out in the public, um, mainstream outlets are grabbing onto those and trying to address them and say, yes, we know people are talking about this particular issue. Here's our, here's our particular uh, take on it. So I think the, the challenge for, you know, for mainstream media in this is just the challenge mainstream media is having generally, which mm. is how do you get in front of as many eyeballs as you can? How do you stay relevant? And frankly, how do you given people's propensity to start looking for alternative answers, alternative facts, different narratives, trying to fill in the gaps, how do you, as a journalist, put out enough information to satisfy that hunger, but not go beyond the bounds of the sort of official information or the sanctioned information or the information you can substantiate? At a certain point, you stop giving the public information because you've you've run out of information you can verify the danger is the public then say well you're not doing your job I'm going to go and seek out more information from other outlets Mm. and I think especially when there is so much uncertainty psychologically it's very difficult for most of us to sit with that and so of course there is this very understandable desire to take as much control as we can by informing ourselves Mm. um of information that can fill in those blanks so that we don't have to worry so much about uncertainty or discomfort or the unknown. And I think the crucial thing in a situation such as this is that we have to, at some point, get to grips with the fact that it is deeply uncertain, Hmm. that there are going to be certain things that we have no way of knowing, and that in certain instances, there isn't a single right protocol moving forward. So, for instance... You know, some people might say, OK, we need to do X, Y and Z. Others might say we need to do A, B, C. And and there is that weird tension of saying, OK, well, of course, there are various options, mm. but they have to be reasonable options. It's a tricky thing to expect people to not go far off track and then start sharing like they have done in groups <laughs> I'm a member of in WhatsApp groups, ridiculous stuff that you should do that's so far beyond the bounds of what's reasonable, like putting Listerine up your nose or someone (laughs) shared in one of my family groups, hair drying your nose to kill the virus. And then my cousin, one of my cousins replied, he's like, yeah, but, you know, I cook a lot of rare steaks. Do you know what happens if you apply that kind of heat to meat? It cooks. (laughs) Don't do it to your nose. Like just so there is also that question of what's reasonable in the uncertainty and the plausible options that are available to us. And then what's just actually quite damaging and dangerous, as well as being silly and funny. It's interesting. So I've been I've been trying to track as many of the um, um, coronavirus uh, advice emails that I can. And what I find interesting for a start, there's this there's a very, very um, common set (laughs) of usually it's sort of 10 to 12 tips um so the length of the tips um is quite uniform now uh, you know i I will be honest about the fact i have not seen every single spam advice corona email but a lot of the ones that have been sent to me as i've called out for them uh, and obviously that will skew towards the uk because i'm in the uk but the ones i'm being sent tend to be about 10 or 12 tips to deal with coronavirus some of it is just logical stuff drink lots of water, drink hot fluids and so on. Some of it is stuff that will help you, but not really with coronavirus. Um, And some of it is stuff that if you think it will help you with coronavirus is going to mislead you. What I find fascinating is for a start, the length of those emails is the same. It's not the top three tips. It's not the number one tip. It's a set of about a dozen, sort of eight to 12, that kind of range of things. And there's some commonality of the type of tips that are being shared. Mm. As I say, Drinking lots of fluids, the the 
coughing technique or breathing techniques there's this it feels to me like information's being recycled and I find the length of the advice quite interesting because if somebody said to you here's the top three things you need to do number one you're going to think well that's not enough I need more information and number two what people are looking for is stuff that goes beyond the government advice you know stay home protect the NHS physical distance distancing social distancing they're filling in those gaps and what these emails give them is just the right information to look comprehensive and to look like it's going to fill in all of the little things that the official sources aren't telling you the problem is of course the information that's being used to fill in those gaps is maybe not dangerous it's certainly not going to help you with with coronavirus what i'm fascinated by is who is generating this stuff somebody sat down and written that um and i'm interested to where that stuff's come from what the motivation behind that is and are you seeing any trends there? Have you uncovered some of the sources of these emails or some of these original pieces of content? Um, and then also I'm curious about who the copycats are. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the progenists of the original stuff and then the people who blend a couple of emails and create something not exactly new, but kind of reconstituted off the base of what came first. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, the BBC's done some quite good research on a particular spam email that went round. Uh, and what's interesting is they've traced it back and done quite a good job of the different leaps that it makes in terms of, of that information spreading. There's an interesting corollary between how spam information spreads and how viruses mm. spread. Mm. So in the same way that you have a super spreader of viruses, you also have super spreaders of information. Oh, that's um, fascinating. So one particular person with a big Twitter following or one particular person who is particularly influential yeah, will grasp this information and put it out and suddenly you see a leap in the exposure. The other thing that I find interesting, uh, more worrying I'd say than interesting actually, is is the attachment at some stage of an attribution to these pieces of advice. So what I've seen going around time and time again is a thing saying this information has come from this particular university or this particular hospital or a nurse who works for this particular institution has given me this. It, It I think that works for a couple of reasons. I think it, it gives people this idea that this is, again, insider information. It's information that's being hidden from you mm. and that's more full information that you can use to your benefit. But also, of course, it gives it the seal of approval. It gives it the seal of authenticity because it's come from these particular institutions. And what's interesting for me is um, researching this, it, it's simply not the case, you know, that those institutions have not put out this advice. So I've you know, mm. gone to them, contacted them and said, look, somebody has said that this has come from you. There was a particular one from Johns Hopkins University in the US who've been doing a huge amount of research on coronavirus. So I contacted them and I said, look, here's the email. Somebody said it came from you. Did it? I don't think it did, but can you confirm? And of course, they got back to me and said, no, it's nothing to do with us. And there's some inaccurate advice here. But at some stage, somebody has attached the Johns Hopkins University name, Mm. to that set Mm. of advice, to those dozen tips that you can use. And I find that fascinating, that leap of, well, we need some authenticity stamped on top of this. I find that a fascinating Mm. leap. It's interesting because I remember early on, probably week two of the lockdown, someone forwarded, one of the people in the older generation forwarded an email which they'd linked to in the WhatsApp chat from ostensibly a Stanford University department (laughs) and I started reading the email and I remember thinking this is pushing emotionally uh, my buttons and I'm starting to feel panic I was like okay well you know I know a lot of the research that goes into triggering a certain emotional response let's have a look actually at what's said first thing I did was went to the Stanford University website which is where this claimed that the email had come from Mm -hmm. and of course it gave much more stripped back clear instructions and it wasn't the 10 or 12 exactly as you've mentioned it was more like in the region of four um and linking Mm. to research from the who and other various papers etc and it was just one of these things where i went back into the whatsapp group and i said guys this is spam here's the link to the actual homepage for this department at stanford these are the actual pieces of advice they're giving please don't forward this stuff unless you've actually taken the time to validate it because otherwise it spreads Mm. and then i had two or three cousins chip in saying oh, um, I already sent it on, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, no, this is exactly what we should not be doing (laughs) at moments of high stress and uncertainty. But of course, that's what we're, you you know, if you're in freeze, fight and flight mode, you're going to be more likely to take rash decisions without really taking the time Hmm. to consider them analytically, because it's kind of how we're we're wired, you know, to, to be in rapid response. What are some of the things that you think people can do that are short hacks 
to create a bit more space so that they don't automatically send off mm. information that may indeed be fake? I think I mean, it's a really good question. So what I've been trying to do is to encourage people to um, carry out quite a simple Google search. You can use other search engines, but Google's probably the most popular, so let's start with that. So you can actually, in that case, for example, the Stanford, uh, Stanford Research Institute, you, you find that institute's website uh, or that, that um, august institution, you find their website, copy the website address, so www.stanford.edu might be the website address, you go to Google and you type in site, S-I-T-E, and then a colon, and then you paste in that address, so stanford.edu. And then you take a line, any line that you like from the email or the message that you've been sent, any quote, direct quote from that piece of advice, and you take it in quotes and you stick it in after that Google search. So site, colon, stanford.edu, and then in, in quote marks, you just stick in a quote from the email and press go. If you get a result come up, that result will be from the Stanford University website. It will be an official website announcement. If no search result comes up, then that email has not come from that institution and, and you shouldn't forward it on. It's, it's, a, it's a very simple search. What I find interesting is, given that it's quite simple to you know, work out whether it's come from this institution or not, the motivations behind why people are sharing and what people are sharing, I I. I'm interested by this because I think there's a mix of things going on there. I think mm. people are sometimes trying to be quite helpful and they believe that they're going to that they're going to help the group. I think there's also an element of um pride in the fact that you've discovered some new information. There's an element of panic in terms of well, if this stuff is true, I I better get it out mm. there and I better share it. Um but I think also there's an element of of feeling like you need to do something useful, feeling like you need to actually be the source of a, of a positive outcome rather than a negative one. So I think so, in terms of why people are actually forwarding these on, I don't think it's necessarily always malicious or reckless. I think there is a motivation behind it that says, well, I'll forward this on, and who knows, it might be true, it might not. I'll let other people make their decisions, but at least I've done the right thing and I've done something. The problem is, of course really you haven't done the right thing you've done the wrong thing you've put more disinformation out into the world mm. one of the things that you mentioned that actually you connect with in the book is the way in which fake news and disinformation sits on three levels um can you talk a little bit about what those levels are for people so they get a better sense about how this actually works as a system yeah sure um one of the things i've tried to look at in the book is 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 the issue of why cybercrime has risen to the top of the news agenda. It, it, it sort of worried me over the years that a lot of the information about cybercrime, and this includes sort of information warfare, um, uh, there's been a lot of stress on the how it's happened, you know, so how do these viruses work? How were these Twitter campaigns managed? How did they break into this bank? How did they steal this money? After that, there's an emphasis on who, who did it. So, you know, can we attribute this to Russia or to North Korea or to, you know, this particular hacking gang based in Sierra Leone or wherever they are? Um, for me, the next question down the line and where we need to get, get to more quickly, I feel, is is why? Why are these gangs operating and, and why have we seen this kind of rise in cybercrime? Um, and for me, it comes down to this to the three groups that have traditionally carried this stuff out. Um, and a coalescence between these three groups. So the first group um, is the is this organised cybercrime groups. Um, these people have access to millions of computers across the world. Mm. They spread their viruses very, very stealthily, and that means the viruses are persistent and low-level, in the same way, weirdly, that coronavirus can, can also <laughs> spread because it can spread before you spot the symptoms. Um, those gangs have always existed. They've always tried to make money out of, out of cybercrime. Um, they've got bigger as their profits have got bigger. But in addition to that, you've got two other groups. You've now got the addition of um, uh, nation-state actors. So governments have realised that it's it's cheaper and sometimes easier to carry out cybercrime to achieve your ends than it would be to try and achieve them by other means. So you've got government-level hacking uh, uh, and government-level operations being involved in this. You've also got this um, what I call hacktivist in the book, which is a sort of um, malicious, 
reckless attention-grabbing set of people who basically understand how the technology works and want to make hay with it. They want to make a name for themselves, they want to upset the apple cart, and they're very good at manipulating uh, media. And what's interesting is if you look at coronavirus and Mm. the kind of misinformation and disinformation that's happened around that, again, these three groups that have become powerful and merged together in recent years come across in terms of how that stuff is spreading. So you have, for example... Organised cybercrime sending out spam emails, and we'll talk about this, and spam text messages trying to trick people into visiting websites and handing over their credit cards or their mm. passwords. It's, it's the traditional stuff, but the coronavirus uh, pandemic has given it fresh legs, if you like. <laughs> you also have uh, an element of nation-state disinformation. So the EU claim they've been tracking uh, Russian propagandists mm. trying to spread disinformation about uh, about coronavirus. And you also have... I suspect what's behind some of these scam emails that claim to come from Stanford or claim to come from Johns Hopkins is, frankly, pranksters sending messages around the internet and trying to see how much uh, disruption and how much penetration they can get with those messages. Uh, so those are kind of roughly the three levels I break it down into. And I'm seeing exactly the same thing uh, in terms of the coronavirus um, misinformation and disinformation is coming out. It's the same three groups behind it who I've isolated in the book. Mm. And how much do you think people are aware of the ways in which organised criminals, the nation state and hacktivists or trolls are trying to interfere with day-to-day life? Do you think the public generally have some sense of awareness around this? Um, I think, I mean, let's look at, let's first look at the organised crime stuff. Um, as I say, they have access to millions and millions of computers. They have access to mm. huge um, spam email machinery that can send out millions and millions of messages, millions and millions of spam emails. Um, so when you see these mega break-ins and the mega hacks where millions of emails get stolen, one of the first things they'll do with those email addresses is to send them spam email. Um, as I say, they have, in some cases, simply switched, and instead of saying you know, HMRC email, they've switched it to, you know, NHS or Centre for Disease Control email. They've just substituted coronavirus as the lure in the phishing emails. That's quite, those are quite sort of basic examples. Um, Obviously, there is also the element of of fear. So yes, you might be afraid that you've missed your tax bill for that year. But if there are messages um, saying uh, you have um, been isolated, you've been identified as somebody who has breached your self-isolation, uh, you have to pay a fine, please click here. Oh. There's a whole level of existential fear that sits on top of that because obviously these spam emails rely on fear. You know, the the key to a confidence trick game is to put somebody at disease and to put them in fear. So these spam emails now have a massive opportunity to, to trick people and to scare people into opening up the emails. It, it, it is new. It is linked to coronavirus. This these, this this rash of spam emails. But on the other hand, it's also very old because they're using the same tactics, the same methods, the same lures, as the uh, same um, email formats as they have before. Click on the attachment, click on the link, and open it up. What I find interesting, and what's a bit more new, is uh, in the UK the government worked with the mobile phone companies to send out mass text messages. Yeah. So many, many people, the idea was everybody, but it was many, many people in the UK got a text message saying, you know, here's coronavirus information. And of course, what's interesting is criminals watch what happens and they they react Mm. uh, symbiotically to this. So instantly, all of the criminals who had access to SMS spam systems were sending out sms messages to people saying hey here's this coronavirus uh, advice and sending links that sent people to more scam websites so i found it fascinating that the government's attempts to reach everybody with an official government message is almost immediately very very quickly responded to by the criminals who are saying okay we can hijack that we can hijack that trust trust and fear is what this is all about it's like a crime and prosecutor sort of digital arms race almost. And it seems like, you know, the best of times, of course, there's going to be scam, etc. But when you bring in the aspect of existential fear and angst and, um, you know, for many of us, there'll be this sense of dread at various times in this experience. That's something which is really hard emotionally to guard against. Hmm. I mean, you know, if you're talking about something which potentially could help to save you or your loved one's life, and you've got this information coming in which looks potentially helpful, I would imagine that that level, that level of fear is going to make it much more easy for criminals to get away with what they want to. It's also, it's a fluid situation. So 
Um, advice is changing quite quickly. I mean, we're at the moment in the UK expecting another announcement about uh, about um, social distancing and, and, and isolation. So um, in, in calmer times, when things are more even keeled, uh, or things when things are on a more even keel, I should say, um, the it's harder to manipulate people with that kind of fake information. It's harder to make them feel frightened and that they need to react immediately. Mm. Uh, with a lot of these spam emails, there's, there's always a, 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 a ticking clock. You know, your account is about to be debited. You know, a parcel has been uh, is trying to be delivered to you. Um, your your tax bill is overdue by three weeks. What's interesting is in a fluid situation like coronavirus, you can exploit that time pressure so much more because you can because people aren't keeping up on the news. And it could be that there are new fines in place for breaching social distancing. It could be that you breach the social distancing rules. So you've got the fluidity of the, of the situation allows more windows of fear because, again, people don't know whether they've got enough information. And, and as a hacker, you're kind of reliant on that. Mm. I've been reading, I think it was yesterday. I mean, obviously, when this interview goes out, it will be slightly different dates. But I've been reading how Silicon Valley is now trying to respond to this infodemic with a more aggressive intervention and to try and embrace official sources and traditional media outlets a bit more. Mm. Do you think that it is something that they'll be able to do sufficiently well to reduce the impact of misinformation? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the... um... It, it is quite interesting, the uh, the irony of tech companies who really, for the past over a decade, have been eviscerating traditional media because advertising revenue has been flowing out of things like local newspapers mm. um, into these tech companies uh, and Facebook's somewhat and Google's somewhat tetchy relationship with mainstream media, the idea of traditional media, the idea that they're now going to sort of take those long-in-the-tooth journalists <laughs> a bit more seriously I do find mm, quite ironic. Yeah. Um, and I also wonder about, across Europe, prior to the coronavirus pandemic, um, there were more and more moves against tech companies. They were coming under more and more pressure. In the UK, there was the online harms white paper, which was going to be legislation about uh, the amount these companies were doing to tackle uh, harm to children and, and messaging to children and so on. Um uh, I will be interested to see after this the extent to which these tech companies turn around, particularly if, you know, we have uh, uh, official apps or app technology that we're installing on our phone that's being rolled out by these companies. The extent to which those tech companies will then turn around and say, well, hey, you want to hit us with new legislation, you want to hit us with new regulation. Well, during the coronavirus, guess who you came to for help? I think there'll be an interesting conversation mm. to have. And I know there'll be somebody working for Facebook stockpiling statistics mm. so that they can roll them out in every single press conference they do saying here's how many whatsapp groups got set up locally to tackle this so i i think that's going to be a, an interesting conversation mm. to have after this in terms of um in terms of how they tackle the the spread of misinformation um that's going to be really interesting to watch so a while ago i did a, an interview with a chap called guillaume chaslow um, who worked for um, Google. He actually worked on YouTube for quite a long time. Um, and he was a, a techie for YouTube. His job was to get more views on YouTube. And what he described was um, was the use of algorithms at YouTube, use of pieces of technology at YouTube, where you could say to the algorithm, here's the video I'm working with. I want to make sure more people watch the first 30 seconds of this video. So I want to increase its initial view count. Hmm. And you would basically unleash this algorithm on that video. He, even as a techie working himself at YouTube, did not understand the steps the algorithm would take. All he knew was at the end of the day or the monitoring period, the week, the month, the views would have gone up. And and what he realised was that this was a machine that, that inadvertently perhaps ended up sometimes feeding conspiracy theories. Mm. Because some of the videos that got the biggest views and the biggest traffic were conspiracy theories. Mm. What he didn't re what he didn't really work out, or what he struggled with, was was an engine that could counter that. So if these if these platforms, let's take YouTube for example, are wanting to fight against fake news, there's a job of work to dig into those algorithms and start skewing them towards more official sources of information and away from the conspiracy theories and so on but the problem is as we've seen in your whatsapp groups in my whatsapp groups i'm sure people listening will be in similar groups on facebook whatsapp and so on what we're seeing is a drive among the people we know to spread stuff that 
although it's not dangerous disinformation, is still disinformation. Mm. So if YouTube's looking for the popular hit, what you and I and other people have experienced is that the popular hit is to spread the disinformation. So are YouTube going to basically have less video views <laughs> as a result of this? And are they going to wear that? It's going to be interesting to see how they deal with it. It points towards a much deeper, more uncomfortable question, which is something that I've been thinking about in the last two weeks or so, which is at what point all levels of society, whether as individuals, communities, larger organisations such as states, or even indeed companies and countries, at what point do we start taking responsibility for the actions that we take? <laughs> and also, especially when it comes to companies who are taking actions that actually directly cause harm and death. If you're talking about information which is so misleading that it causes someone to go out and have contact with, for instance, I'm going to give an example of you know, an elderly person who is then much more likely to spread that virus, I don't know, to their partner and to the over hmm. 70s bingo club, whatever it might be. You know, that's real life consequence. And at what point do we start to deeply question the drive of companies based on whether they're going for maximum profit or actually hmm. bringing into their considerations the well-being of society and the way that they actually want to engage with humanity as a whole. Hmm. And I think at some point, companies have to take a hit and they have to say, okay, we're going to do something which is ethically or morally more right and that means taking a cut in profits, because otherwise, if they don't, I actually think at some point they're going to really shoot themselves in the foot. So do you think that there is a difficult reckoning to be had, especially at this time and probably in pandemics to come, where tech giants and governments are going to have to say, OK, well, maybe we do need to do something different? Or do you think that's just my idealism creeping in and it's really <laughs> probably not likely at all? I think it's interesting that the thought that you're having and the conversation you're having um, there is is was already in the air, I think, quite a lot before the uh, coronavirus pandemic, when the Extinction Rebellion and environmental um, change campaign w w was in full flow. Um, you know, there's a full-throated roar from people. Now, the extent to which the entire population got behind that, I, I don't know. Mm. But I know that there was, um, on the part of companies... Um, uh, an increasing awareness that even if you didn't really believe it or didn't really want to do it, you had to at least pay lip service and you had to at least acknowledge that this was a big movement. And there was this this issue of, well, do we do we make big profits or do we make the right decision? Somewhere in between, of course, is the ideal outcome for these companies, which is can we make big profits by making the right decision? Mm. Mm. <laughs> and... Uh, I think the tech companies are in a similar position. You know, the idea is is that we'll be able to make big money, but somehow not uh, uh, not do evil. The problem with that is, in order to to act ethically as a company, you have to act. The clue is in the in the sentence. <laughs> yes. um, what a lot of these companies have traditionally run on, and I'm particularly thinking of the social networks, people like Facebook uh, 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 and, and Twitter, and so on. They, their arguments so far, um, and this, again, this was starting to run out of steam before coronavirus came along, but their argument has always been, we are platforms. Mm. We, simply, um, we simply basically republish what people give to us. We are not like publishers. We do not have that responsibility. And interestingly enough, this is in Europe, this is enshrined in law, the European Communications Directive effectively exonerates platforms from liability, and that's on civil and criminal matters. Mm. Un unless and until those platforms are alerted to something. So these platforms, it's not that they've been playing fast and loose with the rules. To a certain extent, they've been playing completely within the rules. But their mm. whole argument going along has been, well, we're just a platform. Whatever's popular it is going to get views and going to get hits and going to get big. But we're not, you know, there's no hidden hand behind this. Now, just to go back to the Guillaume Chazelot example I talked about earlier, the algorithm is the hidden hand behind it. Just because you as a company don't quite understand how your algorithm reached that result doesn't exonerate you from the fact that result happened. So there's already been a lot of attention started to be paid for, to that. There's already been a lot of attention to this platform versus publisher argument. And again, in the UK, mm. in the online harms white paper that was, that, that was being discussed, um, uh, that, that will become that will probably become law. Certainly, is being pushed through very heavily by the Conservative government. There was this idea of well, if we can't make them publishers, 
we don't really want to leave them as platforms because we think that gets them off the hook. The middle way is a duty of care. We will hit these companies with a duty of care such that if you breach that duty of care, you can be sued as a, as a result of it. So we're already starting to see shifts around how we treat these companies. I think if they are at the stage of just paying lip service to ethical behaviour, very soon they're going to find themselves in the state of having to actually you know, put their money where their mouth is, put their money behind that lip service and actually start taking those, uh, those decisions. Quite whether that's going to happen as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, I don't know. But there has been this really interesting dance that the companies have been doing around officialdom of information, wanting to be seen as, as a, as a, as a, as a uh, sensible voice um, but also still having this, the back end of the company, if you like, the hinterland of these companies, still is using this same technology whereby it's up to the users what we share and it's up to us what we share. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you're talking about responsibility, we've talked there about the tech companies, or I've talked about the tech companies. This is why I'm really keen to say to people, when you hit the forward button and you send that email on and you say, this has come from such and such, you're lending your voice to that. You, 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 we're in a situation where we're all spreading information ourselves organically. So it's all very well talking about the tech companies, but there's, there's, a, there's a responsibility and ethics question for, for all of us now. We have access to, a, you know, to an email inbox or WhatsApp chat room or, or whatever. Yeah, I think we have a responsibility to each other, actually. Mm. And it's interesting because one of the things that I found fascinating with the way in which this virus has impacted how big bodies behave Um, Not only the government, so you've got democracies who are suddenly making massive decisions to implement uh, social curfews, physical distancing, um, to all intents and purposes, universal basic incomes, which was something which was only theoretical six months ago. Suddenly they've made changes dramatically and quickly and decisively in a way that many suggested Western democracies were unable to do. But then also when it comes to tech companies, you know, this this fascinating um, debate that you're talking about between publisher and platform. Um, you know, you look at Twitter and they're taking radical steps to remove misinformation that contradicts official public health advice. And this is something that previously some of the big players have said they simply couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is an incredibly complex area. But on the plus side, an extreme situation like this does lend itself to rapid leaps of innovation that could take us to a very different place. So coming out of this, the new normal as it pertains to technology and its use and the legal structures around that could be really quite different to what people were exposed to before and expecting of companies before, even though there might have been a context in which you know, there are already discussions around what what could be possible, what could be different. I, th- I think with 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 companies like uh, like Twitter and, and the, so- the social media platforms, Facebook et al. It's it's. I don't see that there are massive leaps in innovation taking place. They they we've known they've had a problem with fake news and disinformation for years. Mm. Um, they have been trying to do different things about it for years. Um, what we're seeing is a sort of speeding up of that, if you like. So I think I think to say there's going to you know there's been innovations around that. I don't think that's the case. I do think um, on a broader level, I think that that people's ability to use technology. I mean, one of the things I think about when I'm you know at home and trying to contact people on Zoom or House Party or Skype or whatever we're using is is what this would have been like before the internet, mm. before the internet was was embedded. I mean, thank God we've got that that technology. Um, for all its ills, you know, we would be in a very, very different place socially and economically without all of that technology. Um, one of the things that I've heard is that the NHS, for example, has been trying to get GPs to do remote consultations, so consultations over the phone or, or telehealth or online for, for years, and there's been resistance from the GPs. Um, now, obviously, GP surgeries have had to do remote consultations, so they may be happy about it, they may not, but they've been forced to sort of embrace this technology. And, and certainly some within the NHS are thinking, mm. well, thank goodness we've been able to do that. Um, I have a, um, a contact who's a psychologist um, who, who, again, his company has been trying to do online training and online sessions for people for years and just hasn't really got its finger out and suddenly they're having to embrace all of this technology. So I, I do think in terms of our ability as a society to use technology to sort of perform our functions, there's there's been huge, that's where the action is, there's been huge step changes. Now, how much of that will 
will we'll, we'll carry on after we all, in inverted commas, go back to work or go back to our offices. I don't know. It, it will be fascinating to see how much this working from home thing stays around. I think what you've got to balance it against is the um, the realisation that I think a lot of people have had of how much the work social life means to them and then how lonely it can be at home, which as somebody who works from home a lot, I can I can quite sympathise mm-hmm. with. So it will be interesting to see where the, where the sort of dust settles, where the balls land after that. Um, I just wanted to talk quickly as well about the um, the tech companies in terms of in terms of how they're actually able to control um, the spread of information. There was something I wanted to bring up, which is um, one of the really interesting things I've seen is examples of um, I don't know whether you've seen this audio recordings. So there was a quite a uh, um, prevalent one, uh, which was a sounded like a sort of Australian or perhaps in Antipodean voice mm. reading out some health messages about coronavirus. Um, which claimed to come from a hospital in the Canary Islands. Um, what was interesting about that is it's an audio recording. So it's somebody reading out some text, but it was audio. I've also seen examples of people sharing screen grabs of pages of advice they've had. And what I find interesting is I think the reason these have, come, these have become so prevalent, the reason they're spreading, is because as a tech company, being able to scan text um, that's been typed in by somebody and being able to scan it you know, with your automated systems... It's something they've been doing for a while. If somebody uploads a photo, there's there's technology that can scan the photo and see if that photo, you know, has particular content in it. You, you know, the Facebook can tell if you post a picture of your dog, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. The systems are not as well developed, I don't think, in terms of scanning audio and spotting stuff in audio and scanning photos of text mm. and reading the text off the photo. I just don't think the social networks are prepared for that. So I think the reason we've seen perhaps more prevalent audio recordings going around or more prevalent screen grabs going around is because the social networks just find it harder to crack down on that kind of stuff. Mm, that's fascinating. What do you think will be the innovations most likely to come out of this period, do you think, when it comes to technology? <laughs> Always a dangerous question to ask a technology journalist to make a <laughs> prediction. Um, I've made a career out of not predicting stuff because you end up being wrong. Um, I think we're already seeing leaps and bounds in terms of the Internet's ability to process video. Um, I mean, the, the, frankly, applications that are programs that can fit dozens of people's video onto screen and stream them all live onto screen and, and can cope with the audio load from mm. everybody talking at once and make decisions... It, that is absolutely astonishing to watch, and I think I think we sort of underplay the extent to which those those programs, those applications, uh, are a helping our lives, helping us work and exist and socialise and so on, but b are coping with the demand. Um, there are people right now working in sections of the internet who these are key workers and. Not going to take anything away from the NHS, but there's a whole bunch of people working for mobile phone networks and internet companies, companies you've never heard of, whose names you've never heard of, who are working night and day to keep the channels open because they will have suddenly seen a huge increase in load um, across across the, the whole day. You know, traditionally, you know, office networks, corporate networks would get hit during the day and then domestic networks at night and so on. The ability to try and manage all of this load I think that's going to be the the really big change and the ability to manage video across the world and the expectation people are going to have now to be able to stream live video and to cope with that. I think that's going to be the the, the big leap mm. forward. Um, uh, I, I will be interested to see what happens with air travel. Um, I mean, it's already, a, mm. as I say, thanks to the Extinction Rebellion movement, air travel was already an, an industry under a great deal of pressure, already an industry operating at really, really low margins. Um, we've already seen, frankly, just chaos within the airline industry. Um, I think there's an element of some of these companies being too big to fail. I think, you know, you have a flag carrier, carrier like Iberia or British Airways. You know, no country wants to let their flag carrier go under. But when these companies come back, they're going to be... Um, there's going to be huge financial problems, huge financial pressures, because any buffer that they had, and as I say, the buffers they had have been tiny, any buffer they have has been wiped out. Um, Staff may have moved on elsewhere and gone elsewhere. They're going to have to get back on their feet, but they're also going to have to get back on their feet under potentially the commitments they made to environmental change that they made before the coronavirus pandemic. And it's going to be an interesting question when, when businesses like that come back, 
whether they just turn around and say, all right, you know, all those environmental commitments we made before, sod those, we're just going to use the same planes. <laughs> so it will be interesting to see whether things we were worried about before the coronavirus pandemic, things like environmental concerns, and as I say, you know, social media and child protection and all that, it'll be interesting to see how much of that stuff comes back. Uh, we also have, of course, Brexit oh, <laughs> to, uh, to deal with. So uh, it will be interesting to see how much of this how much this stuff uh, happens so um yeah but i think it, it ties in perfectly the technology piece and also the area around sort of expectations that we might have commitments companies might have made and also i'm thinking within this and of course this is all we can do right now is imagine various different scenarios in the future because of course none of us know but one of the things that i've been thinking about quite a lot is when you look at the ways in which so many parts of the world i was reading yesterday that delhi has suddenly for the first time in many many years the pollution levels have dropped below the recommended 25, I think it's parts per million for pollutants. Um, it's dropped below that and previously it was up in the 900 on a really bad day and people can actually see blue skies or parts of India. You can see the Himalayas where you couldn't before. Hmm. And there is this very real sense that suddenly entire generations of people around the world will be experiencing their natural environment, or especially in cities, their cityscapes, in a way that they never have before in their living memory. Hmm. And this relates directly with a tangible, practical, embodied experience of what it means to live connected with an environment and what environmental change can happen in such a short amount of time when cars are taken off the roads. And I think that, that really tangible, practical reality of what it means when you take an entire industry, so the automotive industry, offline, hmm. uh, is going to really change the ways in which people think um, of making change. It's going to change the ways in which people think that they can have an impact in their yes. environment. And so I think it may embolden citizens to demand more of these companies, actually. I've been thinking, yes, this comes up in conversation quite a lot. I think there's, and there's multiple different aspects to this. I mean, yes, on the one hand, it has been incredible to see and it's tangible proof of what happens when for example you take cars off the road when you take planes out of the sky mm. um and as you say for the first time certainly in recent memory probably you know in, in in history you can see the absolute demonstrable effect of taking those actions it has to be said of course that the reason we've taken those actions is not like we've taken the cars off the road and that's the only change we've made we've obviously made all these changes because we've tanked the entire economy because we have to because we have to beat this and obviously hundreds of thousands of people you know are are, are going to die as a result so so it wouldn't be the circumstances in which you'd want to carry out the experiment mm. the other thing is in terms of the extent to which after this is over people um remember those consequences remember those those attributes um i think at the moment um at the moment that there are so many things to pay attention to and one of them as you say is, is a sort of bounce back of nature when you take you know cars and planes and so on out of the equation um, I worry that as the recession, as most people are predicting, I'm sure it will happen, as the recession kicks in, as things get harder, will people still attach? How much importance will people continue to attach to those environmental improvements that happened? And the other thing to, to, to remember about this is, is people compare, in some respects, compare the coronavirus pandemic disruption to the financial crash disruption in 2008. What I find interesting about those two things is the, the financial crash revealed a massive hole at the centre of the financial system. You know, it was we basically bet on a whole bunch of future profits, left a big hole for where they thought they were going to be, and when the profits didn't come, the hole was still there. So what's interesting with coronavirus pandemic is it's not it's not quite the same. It's equally disruptive, possibly more disruptive, but there is the same amount of of capital, there's the same amount of people, there's the same amount of willingness, I think, for the economy to continue. So there is almost a I wonder the extent of the elasticity in people and in economies and in societies whereby there is a drive to get back to normal as soon as possible. I've got mm. businesses I'm looking at in the high street at the, out of my window right now and I know the people who own these pubs and own these bars and restaurants, they want one thing at the moment and they just, well, they want to be safe for a start but they want to get back in their pub and open it up and have customers in. So it there's an I know what you mean there's an interesting environmental message and, and potential win but arrayed against that are a number of other forces a number of other tensions I think yeah that's true 
So we're coming to time, but before I ask the final question, I would like to ask you this one, which is, what vision of the world do you want to work towards as we move through this pandemic and hopefully out of the other side? Do you know what I would love to remain after this whole coronavirus pandemic has has has, has gone away? I find it really interesting that when when the, the crap hit the fan... I, I was not thinking, oh, well, who's going to develop the next yoga app or who's going to, you know, come up with the next financial instrument? I was thinking, I hope somebody's working in the supermarket and stacking the shit. I hope somebody's there at the checkout. I hope somebody, if I need something delivered, the post person will still be there. I hope that if I go to hospital, mm. there's somebody there who can treat me. All the, I find it fascinating that the people that I think a lot of people have looked down on in society, and, and there's a you know, huge crossover with zero hours contract workers here, mm. they are the people that we needed most. And if there's yes. one thing that I really hope comes out of all of this is that, that, that those people, A, feel some pride in themselves, but more importantly, when it comes to legislating and regulating and deciding, do these people deserve benefits, perks, employment mm. rights? The answer is a resounding mm. yes, because when you are ill and tired and isolated and afraid and lonely, it's those people who are helping you. And if we can get one thing come out of this, I hope it's that. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, so to end then, I don't know how you're going to respond to this, but I'm very intrigued to hear your answer. <laughs> what question do you want people to dwell with at this moment? Oh, God, that's a, a good question in itself. <laughs> um, the, the problem is I'm, I'm instantly thinking of all the questions I'm asking myself. And it, it, this whole thing came at a difficult time for me because, you know, being in my 40s, I think there's a classic thing where you start to think, what's life all about? But, mm. but the big question that's, that it's forced me to ask myself is, what do I want to do next? It effectively had an enforced, well, it's probably going to be months of enforced housebound time. And and what do you want to come out of this period having used that time to do? The problem is, I feel there's a huge amount of pressure that comes out of that because it's like, well, I learned mm. judo and now I speak Russian <laughs> and so on. I'm not sure whether that's, whether what, what do I want to do next needs to have come out of... Um, you know, learning a new skill or learning to make a pavlova or whatever. But but I think, yeah, what do I want to do next? It's probably a good place to start. At least it keeps you optimistic and looking at the future. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram at natalinahai. And if you enjoy the show, please give it a rating as it reaches new ears. And also if there's someone that you feel could be supported by the content of this series, just ping in the link. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.